Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Defenseless Moments podcast. Today, we're talking about part two of Critical Decisions, and I really like this chapter. I found it very interesting, and it really got me thinking. Well, well, well thanks, Hunter. And, you know, in terms of really got people thinking, I used to start with this story just about as quickly as I could, because almost always it would it would get people to open their eyes which or you know open the door a bit to the whole idea of improving or, or vastly improving personal risk assessments why is that well okay if it, it depends on your I don't know, philosophical point of view um you could say, well, the whole world, you know, we're all idiots and the safety folks have been telling us what to do and what not to do. And if we just listened to them, we wouldn't get hurt. And I, I've certainly met some safety professionals who you know, still ardently believe that. But let's just go back to the very beginning. Okay. Nobody is ever trying to get seriously hurt or, or hurt somebody else unless it's like a, a contact sport or military combat or something. So the, we know that nobody's ever trying to get hurt, and yet people have been getting hurt for years, forever. So the, the whole, well, you shouldn't have been doing this, you should be doing that, like everybody gets told all of that. So um, even if you accept that all of that is valid, which is a bit unusual to accept since we all make exceptions like we talked about in the last chapter, um, and everybody does, maybe there are traps, like we're, we're getting fooled. They're counterintuitive traps that we all don't realize. And then once you get the people to realize them, they can be much more proactive about it. Yeah, that's funny the way that you put it, because my brothers and I, we all grew up um, doing high-risk action sports, my parents were fairly educated people. My dad's, he's an engineer. My mom's a psychotherapist. So um, if one couldn't figure out the system, my mom should have been able to figure out the feelings part of it. And we heard a lot of be careful or you shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. So um, when I first heard about this, the two new concepts chatted about in this or talked about in this chapter, risk that depends on error and taking that extra second, it really made me think. So I guess my question is, can you elaborate a little bit on those two concepts? Without just stealing the whole story out of the out of the article, um, the I was skiing in Val d'Isere. Um, the people I was skiing with were very uh, meticulous uh, engineer types. Maps, compasses—they'll let you ski anywhere in Europe. It was a powder day; like it stormed the whole day before the mountain was closed. Um, we were skiing powder all morning and for a couple hours into the afternoon because these guys had maps and compasses and the place is huge. Like it's the biggest ski area in the world. And I'm just blindly, here's the key, blindly following them. <laughs> and we're going down a 40 degree couloir. And you'd know this, but a lot of folks listening might not. When it's that steep, you can't really see the bottom. If there's a just, it gets a little bit steeper, then you just have to trust that the hill keeps going. Um, we made a mistake. We went down the wrong couloir and the hill didn't keep going. It ended. 
And we were skiing down a 40 degree slope to like basically a hundred meters over rocks and a lane up front somehow sought and stopped. Uh, Ian stopped. And then I just stopped and said, what the heck are you guys stopping for? And they said, Oh, Larry, we must go back up. And if you fall, you will die. I mean, he, oh, he had this wish. Well, he's, <laughs> no falls I mean, well, he's finished, right? So his accent, but the whole thing was just like, so now all I've got to do is sidestep up the hill, which again, if you're an experienced skier, it's not a big deal to sidestep up a 40 degree hill, except if you're so scared that you can't barely move your legs. And so, <laughs> you know, this is definitely one of those times, you know, when I talk about the most dangerous things you've ever done and I say, look, you know, I don't want to say when were you the most scared, but that might help you remember the time. Um, this was definitely one of the two. The funny thing is, is that I had quit playing basketball because I'd torn my ACL. School was over. I didn't want to play ball anymore because if you, you know, you go to get a rebound, you got to be looking at the ball on the backboard. And if you come down on somebody's foot, you can sprain your ankle, which is the most common, but you can also tweak your knee. And my knee was hanging by a thread. And so I didn't, I couldn't afford to have my knee blown out. Plus, uh, I was living in California at the time. So, you know, I really couldn't afford the time off work and all the rest of it either. So the, the whole, I quit playing basketball because it was too dangerous, not because of skill. Mm -hmm. And I can remember sidestepping up that hill. And I, I'm not at safety yet, but I can sort of see the top. I can see safety. Yeah. And I remember thinking, that's a good thing we quit playing basketball, Larry, because you're right. It was really too dangerous. <laughs> and I'm going, man, you know, like, whole, like, we e easily, easily, easily could have died there. I mean, like that, we're going maybe even any faster. The whole thing could have just slid right down off that cliff. Um, Petri was down there way at the bottom and he was waving his arms and screaming at us. But, you know, we didn't have like, we didn't have link cell phones because everybody was different countries. It was like they were big back then, you know, they were, it wasn't, wasn't like yeah. now, right? So it was a bit of a chore and it was really expensive and all the rest of it. But still, you know, I look back on all of it going, wow. And so the point is that people don't like risk they can't control and I'll, I'll i'll say this to the class i said you know like you know i don't know how many of you know somebody who is afraid to fly and almost everybody puts their hand up and i said you know i don't know too many people that are afraid to drive to the airport and you know most of us know the statistics right and i mean in some cases where you're going to and you're going to get in a taxi in mumbai or in new delhi or in the philippines and you're going to drive somewhere I mean, you've never been anywhere quite like this before. I can assure you if you've never been. So Mr. Toad's wild ride. So you'll, um, and yet, you know, people typically don't mind, you know, whereas I've had my arm just like a lady sitting beside me on the plane, just clenching my arm, thinking it was the armrest. And you look over and she's, oh, sorry. Oh, I'm just so afraid to fly. And I'm like, how'd you get here? She said, I took a cab. And you're like, oh, my God. Anyhow. <laughs> So, I mean, that's, that's just human nature, right? But what we don't see is the drift. We, we, when we're making this assessment, we're 
basing it on when we're paying attention. Do I have the skill to do this when I'm paying attention? It's not like it's never the other way around, right? I mean, you think about the mistakes, the really serious mistakes you've made driving. They weren't because of skill. They were because you made a big mistake, like you didn't look or you didn't think about something like, you know, this corner could be slippery until it was too late. But that's, that's when it's really dangerous, right? Because mm-hmm. typically, if you think it is going to be slippery or on the corner, you're not going very fast. Yeah, and you're not going to screw it up. Well, you're a lot less likely to, right? When you're paying, it's 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 those it's those you know what I'm saying, defenseless moments all the time. You come you come back to right. So this is the part that people get sucked into, right? They, they don't realize that over time, they're not always going to be paying attention. Yeah, and little like if you look at there's there's a sequence of errors in this whole thing. But there's also some really simple double checks and there's some really easy things that we could have, you know, like, wait a minute. You know, the one question, if we go down the wrong couloir, what will happen? Oh, you will die. Well, guess what? Why don't we relook at the map and have a second? I mean, (laughs) duh. I mean, that occurred to me, too, as I was sidestepping up the hill. Would have taken a lot less time to look at that map. Well, no kidding, right? I mean, and how much time does double checking take? And why don't you double check? Because you're in a little bit of a rush and you're complacent, right? So, you know, again, the traps, the traps typically do come back to those four states. Yeah. What about the next part, the extra second? Where does that come from? Well, (laughs) this is again, um, just it came from a billboard that I wasn't even interested in <laughs> that caught my, you know, took my eye away for that extra second. And when I came back, the light was red. I hit the brakes, you know, screeched to a stop. It was a, you know, it was a bit sensational, the whole thing. And I'm going, you're not even interest like what were you even looking at that stupid thing for (laughs) and that's when i thought you don't expect it you don't expect the extra second larry you everybody looks away it's part of life like the looking away but every now and again something keeps you there for that and it's that's the trap So what you've got to do is you've got to recognize that before you ever look away at something, that that's all you get is the quick look and it's got to come right back. Like if you think about that before you look away, it's not going to be a problem every time you think about it. But it's got to have that little proactive thought component to it which hopefully eventually becomes almost a habit, a musculokinetic habit with your neck muscles and your head turning back if you're driving. Yeah. Um, You can even practice looking away and snapping your head back quickly so that there's, there's even a little more of that sort of muscle memory working for you if you want. Um, But the trap, the trap, like everybody looks away. Like the idea that you're never supposed to take your eyes off of the road. Well, 
there's controls in the car that you need to look at sometimes like the defroster or the windshield wiper or whatever. I mean, um, you know, most of us kind of know where they are, but it's not that you can't look away. It's if that extra second happens, a lot can happen in that extra second. And so the extra second, let's be honest here, can be more than an extra second if you're looking at something like food, eating food, or a phone. Yeah. When you mentioned the phone, I think that makes a lot of sense because a lot of people, everybody now knows that you shouldn't text and drive, or at least most people know that. And I think that even people who would say that they don't text and drive still tend to get those moments where a message comes in, the phone's right there, and they just want to see who it's from. But then naturally, you look to see who it's from, and because there's a little snippet of text there that tells you what it's saying, they end up getting that extra second and staring and reading the message that they told themselves they weren't going to read because they're a person that doesn't text and drive. And there you go. You've now used that extra second. It's it, that's the trap, right? The trap is that you, you've got to know, you've got to be thinking, come back before you look away. If you really want to, otherwise every now and again, something will distract you for that extra second. So that's like, again, the key is to just be, is to just be proactive about it, right? Now you can go for the hardcore engineering solution and put your phone in the trunk of your car, right? You can do that. But if you can hear it ringing, you're going to be thinking about who it is. So, you know, you've already got a bit of mind not on task as well, too, right? So you're only going to get so many people willing to put their phone in the trunk. All right. Um, Most of us are going to do what you said, which is glance over to see who it was. Or maybe pull it out of your pocket to see who it was and you put it right back there. It's that if it is from the IRS, that might be the extra second right there. Yeah. And you didn't expect it. <laughs> You're probably not looking for, oh boy, um, they're going to audit me. Isn't that going to be fun? <laughs> um, no, no, but you know what I mean. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it isn't that it's always going to happen. It's not going to always happen. It's going to happen once in a while. But when it happens, you're not going to be expecting it. And then you've got that, if you will, elongated defenseless moment which at 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometers an hour can be really, really serious, right? Yeah. So I guess if we then relate this back to part one of critical decisions, it's all about being proactive, knowing the traps and using tools like setting that alarm. Well, the interesting thing, the, the interesting thing about the phone is that it, it, it's obviously become one of the most I mean, I'm not sure if it's killed more people than the AK-47, you know, per se. Um, I'm pretty sure it's got bows and arrows beat already, though, and muskets. Um, You know, there was was millions of people killed with muskets and bows and arrows. But nevertheless, the phone's phone's been on a tear for a long time. But the phone could actually be the key 
to finally defeating the reticular activation system and, and making us proactive. Because if you think about where you're going to make a mistake, if you think about the, like I said, what happens if you go down the wrong couloir? If you even so much, we didn't even have that thought, Hunter. One of us having that thought would have been enough to say, hey, let's stop and check. It doesn't take that long. We would have. We didn't, because we know what the consequences would be. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even, that, that, and so, you know, that's, that, that's part of it, right, is you can stop, you can stop and check. Now, there's, there are other aspects to deliberate risk that I haven't mentioned already. And again, the, the whole idea is to sort of see if you can shed a bit of light on, on how complacency combined with the other states could, for instance, interfere with someone's willingness to check critical components that hardly ever fail. Like the brakes on your bike. You, you know they're important, for sure. But I don't know that many people that actually just check their brakes before they get on the bike, before they're on a hill. I've heard lots of stories from people who found out they didn't have any brakes when they were already on the big <laughs> hill. But I haven't heard too many stories from people who make a habit of checking their brakes first, right? But yeah, that's a part of, again, if you know brakes failed all the time, we wouldn't be complacent about it, but because they hardly ever fail and because hoses hardly ever burst and traffic lights hardly ever work incorrectly, you know, we do get pretty complacent about all of it, right? But quite often, the like you said, the time it takes to check something compared to the time it takes to sidestep back up the hill even, let alone, you know, arrange for three funerals. Um, it's not much. It's not much. So the, the, key, the key is being proactive for sure. Um, but as soon as you start doing that, you can be proactive about more than just safety. Well, that was my next question actually, is how important is being proactive when it comes to things like quality, production efficiency, and customer relations? Is it similar? Is it different? Well, it's, uh, it's the topic of the next chapter, so should probably... Uh, not delve into it too far from here. Um, and as I said before, there's there's still some other aspects of of deliberate risk that are worth that are worth talking about. Um, especially the little voice, listening to the little voice in your head, might be the most unscientific thing I've ever I've ever written about. And it's one of the things that some of the, like the Dr. Wada, who has two PhDs, says, I think that's the most interesting concept in safety that anybody's ever written about, Larry. He said, <laughs> fascinating. He said, um, and good for you for having the, the, the guts to go forward with it. So we should probably save some of that till, uh, some of that till the next podcast. Yeah, well, let's, let's cap the conversation there. Um, Larry, thank you so much again for joining. This was part two of Critical Decisions. We're going to be talking more next time about the other forms of deliberate risk as well as quality, production efficiency, and customer relations. So thank you so much for tuning in. And Larry, thanks again for your time. You're welcome. Okay. 
See you all next time.